G'day, I'm Glenn Davis, and this is The Policy Shop, a place where we think about public policy. And today, we're going to talk about homelessness in Australia. That was the voice of Graham, who suffers from cerebral palsy and has been living on the streets of Melbourne for over a year and a half. Like many Australian capital cities, Melbourne has experienced a notable increase in homelessness recently, with a reported rise of 74% in street count in just two years. So what's driving this trend? Is Australia doing enough to care about the most vulnerable in our society? And what policy lessons about homelessness can we glean from other countries? Three guests join us today to discuss homelessness in Australia. Dr. Sam Semberis is a psychologist and a founder and CEO of Pathways to Housing. He's also at Columbia University, and he's been credited with ending chronic homelessness in some cities in the United States. Dr. Sam Barris joins us on the line from Calgary in Canada. Sam, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be with you. And in the studio, we're joined by Carolyn Weitzman, who's a professor of urban planning in the Melbourne School of Design. Welcome, Carolyn. Thanks. Also joining us in the studio is Deb Batterham, a researcher at Launch Housing, an independent Melbourne-based community organisation working under various levels for the last 75 years to end homelessness. Welcome, Deb. Thanks for having me. So before we go to our panel, let's hear from Helen, who was homeless for over five years here in Melbourne. We spoke to her earlier today. People think that people choose to be homeless and anyone can find themselves homeless. You know, it could be that, you know, you have substance abuse or gambling issues, but not necessarily. It could be that, you know, you lost your job, for instance, and you can't make your house payments. And also, people don't see the visible signs of homeless around them. You know, I sit on a tram and I see the bedding that's been set up for them to come back to. You know, I see them in the early morning still asleep you know, trying to get warm. You know, some of them are lucky to get a shopping trolley to put all their belongings in, but um, I volunteer in an op shop and people are still coming in, you know, looking for blankets and things like that. So, you know, there's a lot of people that don't know that their service is there to help them. And, you know, homelessness is an issue because we don't have anywhere for them to go. Low-income housing isn't available anymore. They've shut them down. Mental health services have lost their funding. So those that have combinations of issues don't get the support that they need. Deb, your community organisation works every day to help people such as Helen. And despite that great work, a walk around the city as elsewhere in Australia suggests a sharp rise in the numbers sleeping on the street and elsewhere. Your research has helped inform the City of Melbourne's response to the issue. But why is this occurring? Yes, there is um, obviously an increase in rough sleeping in the city of Melbourne. The city of Melbourne do a street count. Um, And there's definitely been a significant rise in the last two years. What I would say, though, is that 
the visible signs of homelessness that we see, rough sleeping, um, is not really the most common expression of homelessness. So at any one time, the census figures suggest that 6% um, of people who are homeless are sleeping rough. A lot of people um, use it as a stopgap, so they might be staying with friends, couch surfing, staying in a spare room, staying in a cheap motel and something falls through and they sleep rough for a few nights. And that's probably a big portion of people who are rough sleeping. And then you also have people who are what we call chronically homeless, who have been rough sleeping or homeless for a very long period of time. Um, that is usually a fairly small percentage of the homeless population. In terms of what's causing that, um, as Helen mentioned, um, a lack of low-cost rental housing. So there's some great research that's been done that shows that having a healthy supply of affordable housing has a preventative effect It has a or a protective effect. So people who are otherwise vulnerable to homelessness are less likely to become homeless when there's more affordable housing. So within the, the Greater Melbourne context, I would say that there is a backlog um, that homeless services are experiencing. So part of the reason that you see more rough sleeping on the streets now is that I think there's currently a two-week wait for a better to crisis service, even if you're rough sleeping. Other things that have an impact, Centrelink payments have not kept pace with the cost of housing. So we have a shortage of low-cost rental housing and then we have very low incomes. People can't access it. Um, because of, and I'm sure, Carolyn, you can say more about this, because of the increasing land prices in the city area, we have fewer temporary options for people. So things like caravan parks, boarding houses, cheap motels and hotels are becoming fewer and fewer. And they're the kind of options that we would use to put people in temporarily until we can house them more permanently. Carolyn, you are the lead author of Melbourne, What Next? A discussion on creating a better future for Melbourne. What do you see as the factors that are contributing to this rise in homelessness? Well, I'm afraid I'm going to have to completely agree with Deb, which is <laughs> that um, the main factor is uh, an, uh, a decrease in the amount of affordable rental housing for very low-income households. So to add a few more statistics, about 57% of very low-income households in metropolitan Melbourne are paying over 30% of their income on rent, which is the international benchmark for unaffordability. Almost a third are paying over 50% of their income on rent. That's just, you know, that's a choice between paying the rent or, or feeding yourself. Um, there's been a rapid decline in affordable housing rental stock uh, from uh, 1996 to 2011. And again, it's not as though there isn't any money there. There's been a rapidly increasing amount of money put by the Commonwealth government into negative gearing and capital gains. And as a recent report by the Grattan Institute has shown, um, the majority of that $11 billion that uh, go per annum to um, uh, out of capital gains tax and negative gearing goes to the richest 10% of the population. So there's a massive subsidy of high-income homeowners at the expense of low-income renters, and something's got to give. So in uh, this case, what gives is uh, less social housing, uh, less housing stock uh, of last resort that there used to be in terms of boarding houses and rooming houses, more sleeping on sofas, more um, sleeping on the street. Before turning to Sam Zemberis for an international perspective, a little Australian data, there's a significant risk of undercounting, of course, but at least 105,000 people are homeless in Australia. And when you break those figures down, the human dimensions become particularly important. About 44%, nearly half of the homeless are women, and 
often in circumstances involving domestic violence. There's around 18,000 children without homes, most under the age of 12. And while Indigenous Australians make up only 2.5% of the general population, they make up a quarter of the homeless. So there are some important patterns here. Deb, can we explore further this central concern about domestic violence? A majority of women who present to homeless services cite domestic violence as the reason for their situation. How do we break this cycle? It's certainly really concerning, and I suppose I would add to your statistic there that most of those children under 12 who are accompanying a parent are accompanying their mothers escaping domestic violence. There are programs such as the Safe at Home program, which focuses on removing perpetrators of violence from the home so that women and children don't have to leave, which is fantastic, but that's not always safe and feasible. And I think if you really want to do something about um, women being homeless, women and children being homeless as a, res- as a result of domestic violence, you really need to address domestic violence itself and look at preventing that. Um, And there are a range of things that have been suggested in terms of preventing family violence, addressing the gender pay gap, also addressing the gender caring gap, challenging rigid gender stereotypes, um, and equalising women's representation in politics and business. Carolyn, at least one recent Australian Prime Minister experienced homelessness firsthand as as a child. And when in office commissioned a policy initiative to address the issue, The 2008 white paper, The Road Home, set out to halve homelessness by 2020. How are we doing and has it made a difference? Unfortunately, Australia has experienced a real stop-start attitude towards national urban policy in general and housing policy more specifically. So um, Kevin Rudd's government put uh, quite a bit of money into a social housing initiative as part of the economic recovery package for the global financial uh, crisis from 2008 onwards. What we've had in Australia is um, a Labour government under Whitlam that put a lot of money into urban infrastructure and then that was abandoned under Fraser, uh, a national urban policy under Hawke Keaton, which then was abandoned under Howard, um, some really interesting initiatives under um, uh, Rudd Gillard, and then was abandoned under Abbott. I think the sign for hope is that really Malcolm Turnbull is the first prime minister um, of uh, coalition bent uh, to be putting some serious interest into a national urban policy. And if you look at an urban policy, you have to look at a ho- affordable housing as an infrastructure plank of that national uh, urban policy. So housing, social housing, is like any other form of infrastructure. It becomes cheaper if you invest in the long term and you have programs that last in the long term. That's what we've been missing in Australia, unfortunately. So last year, a national partnership agreement on homelessness committed the Commonwealth government to funding $230 million over two years, mm-hmm. matched by states and territories, which takes up your point about Prime Minister Turnbull. And that's intended to fund frontline services. Mm-hmm. Again, is that policy informed by evidence? Do we understand how we make a difference? And is it making a difference? Now, unfortunately, there's still a little bit too much um, emphasis on frontline services to try to counsel homeless people out of being homeless, um, which is uh, going to be impossible without the bricks and mortar investment. Even the the, uh, Commonwealth Rental Agreement, which is very important, it's uh, one of the key planks right now in terms of providing more affordable housing, isn't putting money into the bricks and mortar of either maintaining, as I say, rooming houses uh, or uh, low-income, either private or non-profit rental, 
Um, but uh, there's no new stock being built. And the fact is that across Australia, there's a shortage of 122,000 affordable and available dwellings nationwide in 2011. That's only gone up since then. So we have a big deficit to address, and we have to start looking at um, non-profit alternatives because when you've got well over 25% uh, of households who simply cannot afford housing in any of Australia's capital cities where the jobs and services are, then you've got a dysfunctional housing system. And this sounds an ideal moment to segue to Sam Samberis. Sam, you're a renowned advocate of addressing homelessness through a program you call Housing First and its success has been hailed by the BBC and the Washington Post, amongst many others. Housing First flips conventional thinking on the approach to homelessness. So why this approach, and why does it work? Well, uh, Glenn, it's, it's as Carolyn and Deb have been saying, there are a number of different ways to address homelessness. The uh, remarkable thing about the approach that most countries have taken is to try and uh, personalize the problem, uh, identify homelessness as something, as we heard Helen in the very beginning say, that it's somehow the choice of the person. And the service approach to homelessness has been, as Carolyn was saying, to try and counsel people out of homelessness. The fact of the matter is that if you take a systemic approach and focus on the homeless person's perception of need, not the policymakers necessarily, not us researchers or clinicians, but what, what the client wants, then you are immediately moved to bring the person to a home. That's, that's what's the most urgent need. It's completely true that everywhere there isn't enough affordable housing, that rents are higher than salaries, that there are many, many more people at risk for homelessness than the people are on the street. So we're not going to solve the whole problem at once. The second thing to do is to prioritize and say, what are we going to take on first? Most communities that have reduced the number of people on the street rather than seen an increase, have taken this prioritization approach and focused on the chronically homeless, the most vulnerable, the, the families you're talking about, victims of domestic violence, children. Let's take care of this group first by providing them with housing, and some of them will need support services. By starting in this way, you begin to develop uh, both a different approach rather than curing addiction or domestic violence or racism, uh, you're simply putting in place a mechanism that solves the problem at a system level rather than spending many millions of dollars in trying to fix the individual to fit into a system. The, uh, there are some amazing examples going on at a national level right now. For, let me give you one, which is the uh, focus on veterans who are homeless in the United States. Now, Australia has a significant homeless problem, but the United States has a much, much bigger problem, per capita, I mean. And the reason that homeless numbers vary, depending on what country you look at, is all about income disparity, the gap 
between the richest and the poorest can almost predict the number of homeless people you have on the street and the quality of services available for them. The wider the gap, the more people, the fewer services. It's, it's, it's a well-established pattern. In the United States, there were 70,000 veterans who were homeless coming back from the constant state of war that the United States is in. Some of them going back to the Vietnam War. They've been homeless 30 years in Gulf One and Gulf Two and Afghanistan and so on. There was a policy move by the former Veterans Affairs Secretary, Shinseki, to end veterans' homelessness. They put together the number of rental supplements and the case management services and began to identify this group of homeless veterans and they used a housing first approach which was a huge huge shift in a hospital based mentality. Social workers had to leave the offices, had to go into the community, had to meet people on the street, had to make house calls. But all of that is well known and relatively easy to do. The main thing is that they targeted this group, they put the resources in place, 70,000 rent supplements and case management for these veterans. And in the last three years, they have reduced that number by 46% and are on target for continuing to reduce it down to zero. In fact, many cities, some of the larger ones, Houston, New Orleans, have already declared zero on homeless veterans. Which is a remarkable change. Yeah, well, why I like that example is that it shows what can be done with the right approach and the right intervention and the right resources. But if I can just jump in as a policy wonk, and I know you're a policy wonk, uh, Glenn, so... <laughs> it's an entire audience of policy wonks. Excellent. Hello, policy wonks, <laughs> fellow policy wonks. Um, some of the key features that Sam was just talking about are things that we'd need to be looking at in Australia. One of them is that you have a clear vision of eradicating not just street homelessness, but the hidden homelessness that Deb was talking about. And I think it is really important to start off with a, um, a, an eminently feasible vision. Uh, the second is to take a partnership approach. And um, I was lucky enough to be in Portland last year looking at um, uh, their uh, initiative on um, eradicating homelessness, uh, which certainly had some federal involvement from Veterans Affairs. And it's just bringing together the various agencies. Oh, you don't have a um, bus ticket to um, view this housing. We'll provide you with a bus ticket. Oh, you don't have a mobile phone, um, which you need to give in order to fill out a rent application or first and last rent. Um, we can set up a, a loan bank, that sort of thing. So sometimes it's very little barriers that get into the way of finding housing, aside from the very big barrier of needing adequate, affordable uh, housing. So having targets, having a vision, um, adequately looking at the amount of money uh, that it's going to cost. And then, as I'm sure um, Sam will get to, the amount of money that you save out of the hospital system, out of the justice system, when you actually provide permanent housing. Um, these are all things that are uh, uh, elements of uh, good policy that can and should be brought to Australia. So, Sam, can we explore that financial point? Because one of the studies suggests that the Housing First program costs around US $25,000 per person. 
per year, but that measures against perhaps 150,000 US dollars to provide all those hospital and other services when services are largely uncoordinated and people are calling on many different support services. Has that been the experience? Oh, that's uh, that's almost a um, cross-cultural, um, a, 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 you know, universal finding. And if you think about it just for a moment, I mean, even uh, that uh, lovely song we heard uh, at the beginning by Graham, and he has cerebral palsy. If we didn't talk about his hospital bills, we didn't talk about the number of times he's had to go to a food pantry or has to stay in a shelter or the kinds of acute care medical attention he needs intermittently. All the time staying homeless, someone like him can easily uh, work up a medical bill of $100,000 a year. And yet the stability of a stable home and a case manager and perhaps a visiting nurse service reduces that enormously. In some of the larger um, studies, the veterans one that I mentioned earlier, for example, there was a 50% reduction in the cost of inpatient services alone and a 30% drop in outpatient services. Because remember, this is a lot about housing, but some of the people we're housing will need clinical support. So it's housing and services. You know, housing first is a uh, is uh, sort of a little bit misnamed. It's housing first, but it's not housing only. It's housing and support services. And those are the support services that help the person maintain the housing because we're housing people sometimes with active addiction or active mental health problems. So the support is essential to the success. But the savings is realized uh, almost in the first year immediately uh, by the reduction in acute care services and in all the other ways that people begin to spend their own money, you know, the, the benefit is also for the person who is homeless. They don't have to uh, go to the uh, place to buy ready-cooked food. They have a refrigerator. The economics of actually being housed, you know, they buy a six-pack of beer and they drink one, uh, watch TV and fall asleep like the rest of us. The other five are in the fridge where you're on the street, you have to drink everything you buy. You have to eat everything you've just purchased. So there is a, there is a kind of a, uh, a benefit economically for, for the taxpayer, certainly big gains. And for the person who is extremely poor and homeless, they too begin to experience a, uh, an improvement in the quality of life. I know you've spent some time in Australia looking at homelessness here, so we're very interested to think about how this model might apply locally. Before I ask you to reflect on that, I'd like us to hear again from Helen, who we listened to earlier and recorded, and give her thoughts on how this model might operate. I think that that would work if there are support services around, because if you just give somebody a house and not give them the support they need, then how are they going to be able to live um, I know initially it took me a while to learn just the basics of, you know, paying my bills, you know, the basics of just self-care, that kind of stuff, because if you've been on the streets for a long time, that goes out the window over time. So they need to be taught how to, um, you know, cook their own meals, how to shop, that kind of stuff. So it's a great idea because housing is really important, but make sure they're linked to other services that can support them while they're there. Sam, does that accord with your experience? Well, Helen and I are singing the same song, aren't we? I mean, uh, it's really... Uh, and I'll tell you that this housing first intervention, uh, 
was really developed uh, with my uh, with interviewing people like Helen. You know, there, there is a a mantra in the uh, mental health business anyway uh, about don't design an intervention for people who are mentally ill unless you have people with mental illness at the table. And I would say the same thing is true here. Don't design clever, you know, uh, systems of care without the people who are supposedly going to benefit from them at the table. Uh, I, I think her uh, advice is uh, not only completely accurate, but uh, it's, in my experience, it's the only way the program has had such success. So, Deb, as Launch Housing here in Melbourne seeks to help the homeless, how closely is it aligned to the model that Sam's just outlined? Um, we do have a housing first model at mm -hmm. Elizabeth Street Common Ground. Um, it's been running for since 2010. It was initially funded really well and we deliver the support there, um, but we had some funding cuts and that's affected staffing levels and it affects the support. So long term, I think there's a sustainability issue there if you're unable to provide enough support for people. Um, it is focused on people who are chronically homeless um, our model, as in, as are the other models in Australia. Um, but I, one of the things I really like about Housing First actually is that challenge around, you know, do you need housing or do you need support or do you need both? Um, and I think really a lot of our clients, who, a lot of people who presented our services only really need housing and a little bit of support to access that housing. So I think um, as a variant, I suppose, on the counselling people not to be homeless, I suppose I'd soften that statement a little bit, but say that a lot of people just need housing and we end up spending a lot of time and resources just trying to find that housing. Mm. Yeah. And imagine how stressful that must be for the individual. So, mm. I mean, it's possible to have housing and still be sick, absolutely. But it's almost impossible to imagine not having housing and not being sick. How could you possibly have the basic preconditions of either physical or mental health if you don't have secure housing. So mm. it just, it, it's so self-evident when you talk, as Sam is saying, with uh, people who are homeless, their presenting problem is they need a roof over their head. And then they need, in some cases, other things as well. But number one is a secure roof over their head. And then almost anything is possible. Let me let me let me just weigh in on this because I think that there's a couple of things being said that everyone is going to be saying, "Oh, housing first, and we all have the same thing in mind. There are at least two uh, ways to do housing first. Uh, the common ground model that Deb refers to is actually uh, Deb, please correct me if I'm wrong, but I imagine it's a single site building. It's one building. It is yes, right. So everybody who's homeless and then people from the the community who are poor live in this one building. In order for uh, for people to be able to, in my experience, uh, th that's that's one kind of housing. I call that single site, maybe harm reduction housing. Uh, and the the mo model that we use is to rent individual apartments from community landlords integrated into the community. It's not an identifiable building, and it's not uh, you know one for for all very different model and very different costs. There's no construction involved. You know, you rent the next available apartment. So there are also the people, uh, you know, Deb says some people don't need services. Well, we're talking about different people. Mm. If people, if people um, like in the domestic violence, you know, I just wanted to go back to that for a second. What we have found, um, and there's a great uh, program actually in Portland that does this already, Women who were victims of domestic violence 
would stay in these horrible, abusive relationships because they didn't want to take their kids to a domestic violence shelter. And this particular domestic violence shelter introduced a Housing First program where the women were offered the opportunity to leave the shelter and go into an apartment of their own with their kids. They left much more quickly and were able to start a life over again. So the economics of their family situation were actually contributing to the prolonged uh, stay in an abusive relationship. So the population you're talking about will have different needs. People who can manage to live in buildings with other people have a higher level of, let's call it, uh, social capability. Uh, the people that we are putting into apartments of their own are actively using. They have all kinds of uh, mental health problems. They have physical health problems. You need a lot of service support for that group. But the other thing that's absolutely true, and this is sort of ironically uh, inverted at some point, here's what happens over time. No matter who we're housing, they're all going to get better. Just as Carolyn said, you put people in the housing, their health is going to improve, their economics are going to improve. Not a great deal. They still have you know, a lot of issues, but everybody gets better and they need less services. So if they're in an apartment in the community and you're visiting them and providing services, when the person is better, you can just walk those services away and the person goes uh, on with their life and the services find someone else to help. It's more difficult when you have the services in the same building as the people because you can't really decouple those as well as you can and then it becomes people living in a building with services that they don't actually need because they're doing much better now. So it has, it, has, it has significant policy implications in terms of how are we going to solve this thing and what model should we use for what people yeah. because it's not a one-size-fits-all. Yeah. But the, the bottom line in a place like Melbourne, and, and this is true of New York and many other large cities uh, across the world, is that there aren't enough units. You could give people subsidized housing and they wouldn't be able to find, um, that is, you could give people subsidies for housing and they wouldn't be able to find housing anywhere close to public transport in Melbourne, anywhere close to any kinds of appropriate services, which means that if you do have support workers, they would need to um, spend a lot of their time driving mm. out to places like St. Albans or West Meadows or wherever to, um, or, or actually Flowerdale north of King Lake, I'm using some <laughs> Melbourne examples, to provide um, services way, way out beyond the current metropolitan limits. So then the challenge becomes how can you have an adequate stock of rental housing that can be provided to um, – uh, uh, for these programs. And in the U.S., there's been the Low Income Housing Tax Credit Program, which has been around since 1988. There's been, um, in, in many cities, there's been a kind of decline in some areas that, for better, for worse, you don't see in the world's most livable city, Melbourne. Um, so um, I, while I agree with Sam about the um, uh, salt and pepper approach to um, uh, scattering people in a housing first model, um, it does point to the need for those kinds of places to be found. Carolyn, homelessness is not just confined to large cities. The 2011 Australian census found that 60% of Australians sleeping rough were located outside the major cities. Mm -hmm. How does this play out in regional Australia? 
Well, part of the issue in some parts of regional Australia is that they've become uh, very popular for uh, holiday homes, second homes, sometimes supported by negative gearing uh, of um, uh, people living in cities. So again, the answer would be some kind of integration between Commonwealth government policy, state government policy, and local government policy. The local governments that are operating in regional areas have virtually no money virtually no capacity to carry out programs, especially with rate capping, but they're, they're often um, the ones dealing with the front line of services when people are insecurely housed. Can I tack on to the end of that? So a large project that we did that looked at changes in homelessness over a decade using census data, um, looking at that data, we found that homelessness was highest in small pockets in inner city areas, and we all see that, but it was also um, equally high, if not higher, in remote areas areas. And in those remote areas, it's a large percentage of the Indigenous population who are classified as homeless. And usually that's because they're in severely overcrowded housing. So there's an issue in the Australian context about having appropriate housing for Indigenous communities in those remote areas, getting the housing in there. I mean, it's very expensive to build housing in remote areas. Yeah, I think I mentioned the King Lake Flowerdale region. I have a friend who lives there and um, it is the place for people who can't afford living in north of the metropolitan area. Uh, it's at extreme fire risk and it also uh, is very far indeed from public transport, services, jobs, etc. So that's where people end up. So, Sam, we, we touched on your visits to Australia. Can I get a sense from you of whether the problems you perceived here and the potential policy solutions were very similar to those in North America or are there culturally specific changes required? Well, I think um, on the program model, I don't think uh, the economics of it and the uh, housing and support services piece are, I would say, readily translatable uh, and uh, can be uh, replicated easily. In fact, there's a very good program in uh, Sydney uh, in the uh, Willamaloo area uh, that's been operating for four or five years uh, using a scattered site rental uh, approach and it's done extremely well. And the Mental Illness Fellowship in, in Melbourne is doing a version of this. What jumps out at me about the Australian context is the uh, large representation of indigenous people among the homeless and uh, that it's similar in ways to the United States because African Americans are uh, more uh, widely represented. Uh, but, but the cultural issues and the way that both the services, you know, we can't have Western services be effective with an indigenous population and also the housing choices that people make, how they want to live, who they want to live with, and where they want to live, has to be uh, informed by uh, that subgroup that is a significant uh, portion of the people who are homeless. One response by city planners has been defensive architecture, as you know, Carolyn, using spikes and other devices to discourage homeless from sleeping near businesses. How should we address this as an urban planning question. You've given some clues there about scattering um, social housing and providing opportunity, but what else do we need to do to address into the fabric of our city and defences effectively against people ending up homeless? Yeah, well, that, that kind of, um, as we see 
U.S. or U.K.-style street homelessness, we also see an increase in gated communities and in um, uh, apartment buildings that are essentially gated communities, and that's a very disturbing trend. And again, it's just about protecting rich people from the sight of poor people. Um, uh, it's not about providing better outcomes for poor people. I think um, that, that planning needs to occur at all three levels of government in Australia. At the federal level, which or the Commonwealth level, which takes in 80% of the taxes, that's really where you need to see a major infrastructure investment in cities, in affordable housing in Sydney, uh, cities. I think it does need to be in a partnership with state government and needs to include mechanisms which aren't yet fully used in Melbourne, such as inclusionary zoning and density bonusing, and just local government ha affordable housing targets. Um, which would all be good from state government. And then at the local government level, um, it needs to be about that kind of inclusive design that um, uh, Sam was talking about, where you don't know as you approach a building or you don't know as you approach a unit whether it is subsidized housing or not. And in Australia, and, and this is also true of North America, we tend to look at those high-rise public housing blocks that were built in the 1950s, 1960s and go, oh, wow, public housing is really ugly. But if you look at some of the current examples of... Um, affordable housing, they've been winning architectural awards. Um, they are gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous. Um, and uh, they very much add to the quality of a community, taking a former municipal parking lot, as is the case in Port Phillip, and keeping the same number of parking spaces even and having a rooming house on top that is a real addition uh, to the community. So from the 1970s onwards, there's some really outstanding examples, I'm, I'm talking from a design perspective, of um, affordable housing, of social housing. I mean, you know, uh, common ground fits in very well into its inner city context, which is around the corner from the University of um, Melbourne. So um, people shouldn't think that just because you have social housing, it's going to be ugly and it's not going to give anything back to the community. Social housing can be beautiful and give a lot back to the community and certainly mixed housing uh, can be fantastic looking. Uh, Sam, more than 100 cities in the United States have picked up the Housing First program and implemented, and some with spectacular success, as you've indicated, getting to zero homelessness. Has this been part of a broader pattern of thinking about urban design and urban planning, or are these programs achieving that without having to be part, as Carolyn's just suggested, of a broader thinking about facilities? No, I think that the the programs that have gotten to zero have done have done so by taking a multi-prong approach. Uh, I think that the patterns that are consistent is um, what I mentioned earlier in terms of prioritization, having the uh, political will to start somewhere and do something about a particular group. And in that initial initiative, there's a kind of a team building and an awareness of the different populations to be served, the different types of housing to be needed. We're not going to solve this in one year. I think we can solve chronic homelessness anywhere in one year. But these longer, uh, pr these issues about affordability, 
uh, both on the rental side, on the income side of poverty, of discrimination, all of those are going to take a multi-year approach. And uh, in some of the places that have gotten to zero effectively, it's taken five, six, seven, eight years. It has been a partnership not only within local providers, but between municipality and county government and federal government. I mean, the federal government, uh, really the neoliberal policies of the federal government supply side economics uh, is what brought us to homelessness to begin with. You know, we're not dealing with something that was always around. This is a direct consequence of very poor uh, policy making that has been a terrific benefit to a very small number of people and has really hurt a lot of people. And homelessness is just the tip of the iceberg because there's so many people. For every homeless person, there are hundreds of people that are in poverty or you know teetering on homelessness. So yeah. we have a, we have significant structural problems. Uh, we're not going to fix everything at once, but we have a way of fixing it. But it will require political will to do so. Let's think for a moment about community attitudes to homelessness. Uh, a 2014 survey commissioned by Homeless Australia and conducted by PricewaterhouseCoopers, identified a series of common misconceptions about homelessness. Those surveyed overstated the number of men who were homeless, while the women and children were largely invisible. They thought that most homeless people sleep rough on the streets, though, as Deb has argued, uh, it's overcrowded private accommodation that tends to be the most common choice. And those surveyed often attributed mental illness or addiction as the primary cause of homelessness, when financial stress and domestic violence are the single largest triggers for homelessness. Deb, as someone from an organisation on the front line, how do you think most Australians respond to the visible signs of homelessness? Do we look away and scuttle by or do we try and help? Um, I think it's mixed. I think you get you get mixed responses from different people. I think it's very confronting seeing people living on the street when so many of us have quite nice lives. Um, and a lot of people don't see this level of poverty in their everyday lives. Um, but what I would say is the things that you can do if you encounter someone sleeping rough or you know of someone who is um, other forms of, of less visible homelessness, um, I think homelessness is a very, it's a scary experience. You're very vulnerable and it can feel quite humiliating asking for help. And so um, making eye contact with people, saying hello and treating them with dignity and respect Carol, a number of political leaders, including the Lord Mayor of Melbourne, urge citizens to show respect, as Deb has suggested, but to give to frontline organisations rather than encourage street begging. Mm -hmm. What is the role for public and for private organisations around immediate responses to homelessness as well as the structured policy solutions we've been talking about? That's a really difficult question. I mean, I think that the success of um, the big issue shows that um, uh, in a one-on-one -on -one situation, people can be uh, very uh, generous. Um, I think that, that this is something that has to be solved in a systemic way. So it really isn't so much about individuals um, uh, averting their eyes or giving money or one thing or the other. It's a matter of um, uh, individuals in the upcoming local government elections, uh, in the state elections and federal elections that are coming uh, up inevitably, um, to make it an issue with their local politicians.
I think rather than talking about our um, attitudes to a homeless person that we meet on the street, maybe we should talk about our attitudes to political representatives and uh, how we might approach them, uh, not for a handout, but a hand up. Sam, I was struck by an interview you gave around a child's reaction to homeless people. And you suggested that that child's natural instinct is to help those on our streets. So why sometimes do we see reluctance to support programs with a record of addressing homelessness? Well, I think that um, I was talking about a child's initial reaction. And sadly, we have had homelessness for some 25 years. We have an entire generation of people who have uh, lived uh, in, in Melbourne and everywhere else where homelessness has been almost a standard part of the urban landscape. And when you interview not the child but the 25-year-old and you ask them, um, do you remember uh, your first time uh, as a child that you saw someone who is homeless, people will say uh, that they do and it's typically when they've been with their parent and as a response to their concern expressed about the person sitting there on the street, obviously in need, they also remember the parents saying, now let, let's keep moving, don't, don't, don't walk too close to this person, leave them alone, give them their space. And we have learned to uh, look away, to avert our eyes, not only from the person on the street, but from the entire issue. It's it's a rather small non-voting group, and so it's up to advocates, you know, to to make the case. But uh, but sadly, uh, you know, it's it's uh, that's what's happened. The reluctance is um, almost systemic, and and you know, we've had the public attitude is what drives policy, and uh, you know, I think uh, it's been said a few times already that the public attitude is uh, very much even what what Helen was saying that people are there because they choose to, uh, people have made some bad choices, uh, people are using drugs, people have a mental illness. It's somehow for every single label that they attribute, it's a distancing from them and us, and that creates the possibility then of not having to deal with not having to deal with that other human being so it's uh you know it's uh, thinking of the poor as different than us thinking of the poor as somehow less than us has a long long tradition in history it's been a delight to talk about a difficult issue but an important one uh, with our guests and on the line from calgary in canada dr sam sembaris thank you sam Oh, great to be with you. Thanks for having me. And in the studio, Professor Carolyn Witzman. Thanks, Glenn. And Deb Betterham. Thanks. I'm Glenn Davis. This has been The Policy Shop. Thanks for listening. Well, I've been sitting here Just trying to find myself I get behind myself And I need to rewind myself and I take too many days Yet it helped to ease my pain City make a dollar steal Yet nothing else seems to change no This episode of The Policy Shop was produced by Owen Hassey 
with audio engineering by Gavin Neymar. Research was by Ellie MacDonald and Dr. Lauren Palmer. The Policy Shop would also like to thank Helen and Graham, who we heard from earlier. Copyright, University of Melbourne, 2016. Only God knows why.